If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hardfork. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. This spring, Sally Busby was named the executive editor of The Washington Post, becoming the first woman to ever hold that position. I worked at The Washington Post from the beginning of my career, starting in the mailroom as a student at Georgetown University, and I eventually left as a reporter. But back to Sally. Before joining The Post, Sally spent over 30 years at the Associated Press. She's now overseeing a newspaper that's grown over the last eight years, thanks in part to an infusion of cash from its owner, the richest man on earth and now apparently in space, Jeff Bezos. But even as the Post has grown, there's been controversy inside the paper. Earlier this year, reporter Felicia Sanmez filed a lawsuit against the Post, alleging that editors there stopped her from covering stories about Me Too in 2018 because she's a sexual assault survivor. Other reporters had clashed with the editors about their Twitter posts, too. So I wanted to talk to Sally about how to manage a modern newsroom, her vision for The Washington Post as she takes over from Marty Barron, and how one of the nation's biggest papers can thrive in the digital landscape. Sally Busby, welcome to Sway. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I want to start with your move to The Washington Post. You were executive editor at Associated Press. You've been there for decades, as I just noted, starting in Kansas and rose the ranks. So what was different about The Post that drew you to the paper? Obviously, it's one of the most prominent editor jobs in the world, really. I'm a huge fan of AP. I love AP and really enjoyed it. I think, obviously, the big difference is that The Post has made so many strides in terms of um, its digital platform, its digital storytelling And just that opportunity really for me to learn and to understand how to make journalism as accessible and as relevant to people and told in the ways that they really want to consume it. Uh, And the the ambitions to grow internationally, really interesting. So uh, if you had to pick one or two words of what your leadership style is, um, what would you say yours would be? You were called a badass by InStyle, but Oof. I'm not sure that's the one I would pick for you. <laughs> um, I mean, what attracts me to journalism is just like the intellectual challenge of it. Okay, so I want to be deep in it. I guess that's hands-on. I don't know. And I do, I, I like to work in teams. What I like about journalism is that there's a lot of smart people and you've got the right group of smart people around you. And then you argue over something and then you make the decision. So I don't know whatever captures that word. Well, it's collaboration. It's not It's not being in your office, coming out yelling and going back in your office. I don't see that as your leadership style. You know, at AP, I sat in the middle of the newsroom. Um, and Are you going to do that here? I mean, we don't, we, you know, we're still not all back in the newsroom, but I would like to figure out a way to do that here too. Absolutely. So how involved was Jeff Bezos in your talks of the Post? And how did you look at yourself as a journalist and also someone who's going to rely on this man's vast quantities of money to expand? I mean, most of the interviews, obviously, were with the publisher, Fred Ryan, and um, I did chat with, interview with Jeff Bezos, and 
That was chat. it. it was what a, does that mean? Chat. Uh, <laughs> a coffee and An cookies. informal interview. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and it was extremely interesting. And um, he asked really smart questions. They were mostly about leadership style and, and how you motivate and lead a newsroom. And in terms of how he looked at his role at the paper, did you discuss that with him? Because obviously it's got to be concern of any editor who comes to an owner who's so well-known and so uh, right in the middle of things right now. I think it was clear from the very beginning that the newsroom had editorial independence. I think that was clear from the last couple of years. It was certainly critically important to me, and that was never in question at any point. It wasn't, because did you ask him directly about that? Absolutely, we talked about that. Yeah, but then how did he see his role then? Because the Grams were quite involved. You know, I worked there for a long time, and they were, I saw them quite a lot. And I was a minion at the time, you know, and if I saw them that much, you know, other people saw them more. I, mean, I think the easiest way to answer that is that I'm, I don't have day-to-day contact. I mean, my boss is the publisher um, and uh, definitely have day-to-day contact with him, but uh, not really having day-to-day contact with the owner. So do you have any concerns that it impacts coverage? I haven't seen any indication that it impacted coverage in the past and it's not impacting coverage now. You know, we operate independently. The newsroom makes its editorial decisions independently. That's clearly critically important. And uh, I believe that is how it's going to be. You think that's going to be, and that's something important to you. Now, Amazon's a huge business, obviously. It's the second largest private employer in the U.S. after Walmart. And Amazon brought in $386 billion in revenue last year. Astonishing. Um, They're also under regulatory scrutiny. And Bezos has other aspirations. He's interested in space. Uh, he's interested in screwing with Elon Musk, et cetera. So how do you look at covering him when he owns a paper? Because there's a lot of stories. And just I mean, I think as the Washington Post, we have to be a leading cover of you know some of the biggest, obviously the biggest forces in our in our world are big companies and that have important implications for all kinds of things in our world. Um, yeah, I think we will be a leading leading cover. I mean, we basically look at it as exactly the way we cover every other company that we cover. Exactly. Um, cover. I think, exactly. And you don't have to take it up if there's something controversial? We do not. You do not. Okay. So one of the things that Bezos's cash does is impact the post. You now have 1,000 people on staff, up from 580 in 2013. It's a huge amount. In September, you announced the addition of 41 editing roles. This is not, you don't hear this stuff very much anymore in journalism. Overall, digital readership is up and the paper just announced new hubs in Europe and Asia. Obviously, there's benefits to having uh, someone who has this much money. How do you think about these investments? Yeah, I mean, the Post has obviously grown over the last couple of years and that has been absolutely fabulous. I think its ambitions are to essentially be an essential sort of global news source going forward with a very, very modern, innovative digital platform. And the point of that, obviously, is to enlarge that audience as much as possible. I think a lot of that is, you know, how we figure that out over the next couple of years. But we're not looking to expand in ways that don't essentially meet that mission of doing extremely strong accountability journalism and bringing it to a wide audience. Accountability, that would be the first thing on your list. I think I think accountability. I think essentially the Post's essential role is to hold powerful people and institutions accountable, right? That's what it's done. What I'm interested in, what I think the Post is interested in, what I think our newsroom is interested in, is to think about what are other topics, what are other geographies where we can expand that mission. Meaning across the world, across the world or not just in Washington? I think across the United States. 
I think, um, internationally. Um, but is there any are there any particular areas of the world? Is that would that mean Asia? Obviously, Asia, China is important to the entire world. I think that the same kinds of misinformation uh, issues that we see in the United States are also happening in Europe. I think it's also very topic based. I mean, climate is really a story that is an international story, right? Yeah. You said in accepting the job at the Washington Post is on the cutting edge of digital media. It wasn't for a long time. It certainly has gotten a lot better than when I was there and even after that. I wrote an open letter to Bezos in 2013 lamenting some of the missed digital opportunities. That's why I left the Post, actually. I wrote to him, quote, but like pretty much every other internet mogul I know, you also appear to relish the destruction of old memes as much as building new ones to replace them. And while you are seen as patient by some, it is hard to imagine your hyperactive intellect being comfortable with the kind of slower deliberation that is so often how old media operates. I like to lecture billionaires. How do you look at that idea of the immediacy of the digital part of journalism? I mean, that's a very complex question. So the way that I look at this is that the core thing that journalism does is not changed. We are trying to find out what facts are, what information is. But clearly there are stories that can be told better visually. I mean, one of my favorite examples of this is that I think it's very difficult for most people to read a text campaign finance story. They are very difficult to read. They're very dense. They're very opaque. But data visualization can really provide this information in a way that makes sense, right? You know, it can show who's giving to what, what are their networks, what are their links, that kind of thing. And so to me, that's really what I'm talking about is what's the best way to tell this story? And now we have these incredible tools to do that with. When you're doing that, when you pick a story like that, do you sit down and say, this story needs to be told this way? Is Are you able to do that in the newsroom? Because it's so oriented towards print. And I'm like, there's going to be no deadlines in the future. Everything, every minute is a deadline. And they kind of stared at me and told me to leave. But <laughs> how do you shift, you know, what are your plans and goals for using digital media and incorporate it within the staff to understand it better? I mean, generally speaking, the Post tries to tell its stories digitally first. And that is, I mean, I think the progress here has been amazing in terms of that. Now, is there still room to make progress? Of course there is. So you're basically asking me, are you going to succeed at your job, right? Mm -hmm. Because yes, that's, yes, what... <laughs> that's what I'm asking. <laughs> so I think the way to do it is to make people get excited by what they can do. So when you said digital first, what are the problems that tech creates for newsrooms that you see, what that you identify when you're coming in? The problems that tech creates? Versus the positives. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I think in general, the positives are just much bigger. I mean, I suppose, um, I don't know. I can't really think of one. Well, I can get to some. I'll get to some. All right, let's dig into the future of news a little more. Newsrooms have been under heat for how homogeneous their staff is. Obviously, people think all white men in the top roles. That's not entirely true. So what is your idea of the modern newsroom that fits the needs of today? I mean, I think that there is just no question that we have to have um, diverse staffs. Of course we do. We have to have diverse leaders. We have to have, you know, a newsroom where people feel they have a seat at the table. And the reason that we need that is not just because it's the right thing to do, but because that's the way that we come across and understand the stories and perspectives that we need to bring into our journalism. So, you know, I think there's been progress made. I think there is obviously a ton of work that still needs to be done on this. And it's a high priority for everyone here. 
Okay, so tech may not have drawbacks, but social media might. A lot of reporters and columnists are on Twitter, obviously. It's led to some clashes with newsroom leadership who think they're sharing too much of their personal takes, revealing their biases, which exist. Uh, this has become an issue at the Post before you arrive when Wesley Lowry got into a dispute with the then executive editor, Marty Barron, over some of his tweets. Felicia Sonmez was allegedly scolded. She did say that would happen for tweeting about Kobe Bryant's sexual assault allegations. And then subsequently, she says she was blocked from reporting on similar issues. You must have had these issues at AP, but less so. I didn't ever see any. Um, What is your line for what's appropriate for reporters? The way I think about this is that it's it's obviously normal for reporters to want to bring sort of like their whole selves, um, Mm -hmm. what that, you know, their, their, who they are, their identity to the reporting that they do. Um, That's completely natural. Each of us is the people we are as we do our jobs. Um, And I also want to bring that into their reporting. You know, someone who's different from me might think of a different story idea than I think of. And every person's going to bring their perspective and that's going to enrich our journalism. And then we have to balance that against doing things that can um, cause people to think that we as an institution are biased in certain ways or that we have opinions as an institution. And that means that in some ways that harms their willingness to talk to us um, for stories. We cover stories all over the globe. So I want to ensure that we're not talking on issues that could, you know, endanger reporters that are, you know, covering in some cases some very intense um, issues internationally, right? And so I think you basically have to balance those two things. And my goal is to, you know, work very collaboratively with this newsroom to figure out where's that balance, um, to think how do we best approach this? What are our best practices um, From your perspective, what is the best? What? How do you look at it? Because at some point, you're going to run into this. I mean, I kind of just told you what my perspective was, but I think it's a balance, okay? And I think what we are trying to do is ensure that we're not giving people signals that we're biased against, you know, that we don't have political opinions, that we're not um, coming down and that they can't trust our journalism because of X, Y, or Z. That's the balance that I would try to find. Don't they already think that? <laughs> Well, I think our goal is to not turn off. I mean, I don't want to give up on any reader. I mean, certainly there are people who are not going to trust the Washington Post, but I don't think we want to give up on big swaths of the world. Um, I mean, we're certainly not trying to, you know, I'm not interested in um, people who are racist reading the Washington Post, but Mm -hmm. I also, I don't think we want to give up on, you know, if we do good journalism, I want that journalism to get the widest audience it can. So are reporters having social media net positive? Does it draw in eyeballs? Do you see it that way? One of the things that I thought about when I was running a newsroom was like, look, we should say what we think. Just say it. Just say it. And, you know, this is my life. Because I have a big relationship with readers and they know where I'm coming from. So they're not surprised necessarily. I mean, I think that it's important for, I mean, I I don't think we can hide behind walls and pretend that um, we're not people. And I don't think that we can, um, you know, I think modern audiences want to understand how journalism is done. They want to know who's doing the journalism. And they they want, in some cases, a personal connection with journalists. And we all understand that. And some of that is that the news organization has to be transparent about how it's doing work. But some of it is clearly people want to know who's doing this journalism, who's the person, just as exactly as you're expressing so I don't even know whether I think it's good or bad. I think it is the reality of our world, and we can't, I mean, we sort of have to embrace it. Mm-hmm. What is your rule now? Did you change it at all? What I don't even know what the Washington Post's particular rule is. 
what our rules are. Yeah. Um, we've been very clear that we have some sort of conversations and updatings of policy that we need to do collaboratively as a newsroom. Um, and we're sort of like kind of starting the process of doing that. But I think to me, the corollary of that is like, what are the best practices? I don't want a young journalist or a mid-career journalist or any journalist really to be guessing. I want them to have like, talk to your colleagues and figure out like, what's the right balance for you? I think that's the healthiest and most productive way for us yeah. to work. Yeah, I think it's hard because people don't know where the line is, unfortunately. I used to say, uh, have at it, but if you embarrass me, I'll kill you. And, yeah. <laughs> and then they were more careful. It was really interesting. You know, interacting with readers has always been a problem in newsrooms. When email first started, I put my email at the bottom of my Washington Post stories. And every reporter was like, why do you want to do that? They'll talk to you. And I was like, exactly. That's what, what they're going to do from now on. And you better get used to it. But one of the things that you have in these new systems, though, where people get fans and they do get fans and, and you have an economic problem because it turns out some people are underpaid, some people are overpaid. How do you think about that when someone can, they read these stories of someone going off and making a million dollars on Substack? Not all of them are true, by the way. Just so you know, the <laughs> economics are not what they're saying there. But it, they, but they can do well if in a certain way. Um, how do you answer that? What's I mean, it's the- a great question. I guess this question doesn't scare me. I think, you know, look, in journalism right now, people do move around more. There's just no question than sort of, I don't know, back in the day or whatever. But I think that, I mean, I'd say a couple things. I think one of the huge draws of the Washington Post is you get to work with a bunch of smart people who make you smarter every day, right? And I think that has a lot of pull. Um, but I also think it's kind of natural in this day and age that you know, we do not want to lose our talent. There's no question about that. And my job really is, like, to to hold on to and motivate and inspire and create the conditions so that highly talented people can do great work. I mean, that's how I, that's truly how I envision my job. But, you know, I don't think that we should freak out if somebody wants to go try Substack for a while. Because, you know, I think that, like, the lures that we have, like fabulous editors who can help you do your best work, I think that's a powerful draw. And I think in the end run, we'll be in pretty good shape. Yeah. Sometimes I say to people, when, I, when people come to me, I'm like, you know about libel, right? Right. I mean, we have, we have a support You know about system. Peter Thiel suing people <laughs> out of existence, right? We, we, got- I mean, right. We, we are lucky. We are fabulously mm-hmm. lucky to have a support system that can help journalists do their best work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know the minute I step out, into the, out on the savannah, I'm completely dead. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Dr. Patrick Soon-Chiong, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Sally Busby after the break. This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business powering possibilities. 
I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm gonna guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. You were just talking about an investigation by the Post on the January 6th attack. Excellent. Beautiful job on that, I have to say. Thank you. And it felt like you, your first kind of thing. Like, I felt you in it, the leadership there. So can you talk a little bit about what you were doing there? Because it was, it was a lot of just the facts, ma'am, and let us show you. Um, another project I thought was really strong, I think it, began before you was Eli Saslow, Voices from the Pandemic. Yeah. Can you talk about your theory of that kind of journalism? Because I thought it was super effective, uh, but it's hard to not be politically charged about either of those things. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we want to be like, you know, dry and, and boring, but I think that Fact-based journalism can be revelatory. It also can express many things. It can have voice. And a lot of the magic in journalism, you know, a lot of the actual skill in journalism is to ensure that we're really having some voice and bringing some perspective to things, but not really going into opinion. I mean, I just, I find journalism more interesting than opinion. I just think that understanding the world and all of its complexity is such a fabulous thing that we can do. So on January 6th, the idea there was um, the people who drove the project were really interested in trying to say, like, now that some time has passed, we want to figure out, like, what happened beforehand? Was there something that was missed? What was really happening on that day? And then what has happened since, right? With the idea that does January 6th have implications for the future? we felt that there were still things that could be learned. So, for example, one of the things we learned was that there was like a really serious sort of security incident at the Washington Monument early in the day, right? That might have been a trigger to law enforcement that like there were people that day who were very intent on violence, right? And we hadn't really known, I don't think, that much about that Washington Monument incident. And then there was a lot that we found out about before, I mean, some of the really interesting stuff was just like the amount of chatter and the people who were trying to raise the alarm. I think there was some really interesting revelations about the role of the National Guard. Why was the National Guard not on standby? And then I think just the impact that this has had. Like one of the most compelling parts of that whole project to me were the audio recordings of the death threats and the threats that elections officials have gotten since January 6th. And some of them are very explicit, very pointed. So our goal was to dive deep into the reporting. It was an enormous number of reporters, and they all went out. They all had tasks. And then we wanted to take that reporting, and we wanted to make it visual storytelling. We wanted to have sort of the tweet there as the tweet happened in the chronology of the story. And we wanted the audio clips so that we're not just telling you that an elections official got this death threat. 
We want you to hear what this sounds like on this person's voicemail. And then obviously the power of photographs in our world, which remains very strong, I think, in a digital world. I think that the way that story was actually told, the way it unfolded, it's very long, but you're moving through sort of this moment in history. You're almost metaverse, Sally. Um, (laughs) I don't think I'll ever be metaverse. (laughs) That would be incredible with an Oculus. Think about it. You're right in the middle of it. Eventually, that's how people are going to experience news. One of the things that you said when you were at AP, quote, we have made a decision we don't want to turn people off by using so much emotion that they won't look at the veracity of the factual information. Um, Has news become too infused with emotion? I don't know that it's too infused with emotion because I do think that human emotion is a critically important part of of journalism. I want to make sure, though, that what we're doing is fairly reflecting a lot of different perspectives in our journalism. I do think that we don't want to I don't want to be snarky in our journalism. I don't want people to think, you know, this is just a bunch of people who have this opinion or this viewpoint all talking to each other. I do want to make sure that our journalism is accessible to people. And by that, I don't just mean told in a certain way. I mean that people feel that the facts are front and center in what we present to them. Right. Although I literally just bought a Washington Post for my mom and she's like, oh, the liberal newspaper. Like, I don't read that. And, you know, she immediately went to the New York Post. And a lot of it has to do with misinformation, some of which was boosted by then-President Donald Trump, has been particularly rampant, not just around elections, but around COVID, everything else. So how do you deal with that when people have sort of become rather stuck in their zones? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm a Pollyanna. I think we all understand some of the headwinds. And maybe some of that is justified. I'm not talking about the Post, but I'm talking about, you know, in general, in society, But I think that there are a lot of people who, when things matter, they look for information. So let me give you an example of that, okay? The debate over the pandemic is enormously politically polarized in this country. And yet there are a lot of people who still go and they look at those interactives and say, how many COVID cases are there and how many COVID deaths are there? And the only way that we can possibly think about that is that people are still looking for factual information, even if they also are politically polarized in how they deal with it. Um, I mean, The Post is a news organization that covers government. It broke Watergate. And on the news organization, we have a lot of people who are writing opinion columns that are liberal. We have a lot of people who are writing political opinion columns that are conservative. And there are going to be people who don't want to read us because of what they perceive that our position is. I think the question is just like, do you give up on that or do you just keep trying? And I do think that one answer is transparency. Um, transparency is part of then the modern newsroom from your perspective, that transparency is. I think that the people who read our journalism want us to be, you know, to sort of tell them what our standards are and to kind of explain how we do our journalism. I, I sense a lot of hunger for that. Yeah, they want to be heard. Yeah, I mean, there's haters out there, and I do think we have to protect our journalists from abuse. I mean, this is a real issue in newsrooms right now, is that there are some people who are really going after journalists, you know, and it tends, unfortunately, to fall most strongly onto women and journalists of color. And I think that's a big part of my job is to ensure that we're protecting those journalists. But, I mean, I would say that since I've taken this job, I've gotten an enormous amount of extremely smart and very thoughtful feedback, you know, just people emailing me, just people sending me stuff. Some of it is very critical, right? And some of it is just very thoughtful. 
you know, and some of it's also crazy. And so you just kind of set that aside and you kind of like, but some of it's just enormously thoughtful and it does make sense to listen to that. A hundred percent. So let's talk about the Steele dossier, which contain allegations about Donald Trump and his relationship with Russia made headlines when it was first reported in 2017. That reporting has since been undermined and the Washington Post recently added editor's note to articles, removed a video and changed a headline. So walk us through the decision. You just added it. Talk about it and how you think about looking back at coverage that may have been not to the standards that you wanted? So we decided to act and to remove some material from a story based on there was new information that came out in this earlier in November indictment from the Durham investigation. This is John Durham. Yes, the counsel, right. Um, And um, then we also went back and we tried, based on that new information, to talk to the people that had been the sources for that original story and do additional reporting to see if those stories were still okay. And one of the two sources of the information said that what had come out in the indictment and other new information had made them have grave doubts um, about what they had told us in 2017. So based on that, we felt we could no longer stand by the information in that story. And so we decided that the right thing to do was to remove it. In doing that, we tried to be as transparent as possible to explain in the editor's notes what we were doing and why we were doing it. But we, you know, I think we felt that as journalists, if there is new information that changes something that we said in the past and that makes it no longer true, we have to deal with that. Did you make that call? Can you talk a little more specifically? Because why do you think reporters in the media in general didn't question the origins of the dossier? Now, you, this was not under your watch, but still you have to, you're cleaning up the situation. So I think, first of all, you know, based on what I know at the time when the dossier came out, the Post was very skeptical and extremely sort of probing um, and cautious in dealing with that material. The Post never published the entire contents of the dossier or anything like that. Okay. Um, I got it. You're not BuzzFeed. You didn't BuzzFeed it. Just here you go. What happened in this case was that the reporters involved, the minute that this indictment came out, you know, pretty much came to us immediately. I think we all kind of probably reached a conclusion at the same point. And we decided that we needed to do further reporting. The reporters were completely ethical. They came forward. They said, hey, this indictment came down. We need to go back and look at that story. And so we did reporting. And then we essentially, you know, sat around in a room and we talked it through. What was the most transparent and what was the most ethical thing for us to do? And, I, you know, obviously I make the decision, but it was a really collaborative and thoughtful exercise to go through. And we made the decision together to do what I hope is the right thing. And when you think about this, one of the things that I think the critics are correct, it's very hard for newspapers to say, I was wrong. We were wrong. Not mistakes were made because we made mistakes. So how does that impact the reliability of the reporting? And then how do you think about how transparent you need to be about mistakes that might have been made? I mean, I think on the second part of that question, we want to be transparent and honest about mistakes that we make. I think in terms of the coverage overall, I mean, look, the Post did what I consider a lot of incredible coverage that focused on Russia's interference in the 2016 election and how the Obama administration handled that, and also the contacts between certain members of Trump's administration and Russian officials, and we're very proud of that important work. I don't think this impacts that. A lot of that was substantiated and and affirmed by the Mueller investigation um, and the Senate Intelligence Committee. And that work, I think, is important work. 
Mm-hmm. So as Washington Bureau Chief, you oversaw the AP's coverage of the 2016 campaign. Um, have the last six years, and I'm counting the 2016 campaign as well, changed how you think about political coverage? Because it's going to be at the top of your list very soon. Well, I think we've all thought deeply about political coverage in every possible way over the course of the last six years. I think we've thought about election nights and what is the most transparent way that we can provide information on election nights. I think all that kind of thing. We're thinking about it deeply now going forward. Can you tell me what deeply means? Because it's kind of one of those (laughs) words. Deeply, right. Yeah, it's an adverb. I don't like adverbs, but go ahead. I think we're thinking about things such as, let me just give you examples We're thinking about misinformation. How are we going to organize ourselves into teams so that as misinformation happens, we can understand that it's happening and also figure out why is it happening? Who's pushing it? Where are people consuming it? That kind of thing. So that involves thinking about political reporters, technology reporters, you know, new reporters that we've brought in since the last time. What do they offer to this equation? That kind of thing. We're thinking very much about how do we ensure that we are getting coverage from all parts of the U.S. And it's pretty clear there are going to be disputes over election process and election integrity going forward. So how do we array ourselves so that we are in the best position to be on top of those stories? So there are, of course, rumors that Trump is considering running in 2024. Um, do you think the media is better prepared to cover another Trump campaign if he does decide to run? Or how how do you look at that? I mean, my goal is that our news organization is prepared to handle whatever comes at it um, in terms of whoever runs. I think that we are in good shape to handle whatever happens in American politics. If you had to look at a mistake in covering Trump by the media overall and yourself at AP, Um, that you're thinking very hard about right now. What are you very cognizant of? Um, I'd rather put it in the context of any political leader because I think that that's really um, the way that we need to look at these things. Um, Making sure that our fast coverage and our deep coverage are both very focused on if someone says something, making sure that we are quickly assessing if there's a factual basis to that or not, those sorts of things. I think having a lot of caution, having a lot of skepticism, assuming, you know, that there's very polarized people that are coming at us and trying to assess what they're saying in some of those perspectives. Those are some of the things I'd say. So I have two more questions. One is uh, this new Twitter blue. You're in this. It's a subscription service, $3 a month, essentially. Include ad-free articles for over 300 news sites, including the Washington Post and the Atlantic. When you're looking at all these tech companies, which have a big influence on your distribution digitally, what do you think that relationship is? Yeah, I mean, we have conversations about what makes sense for us in terms of mission and what makes sense for us in terms of, is this benefiting, you know, our desire to get audience you know, I mean, we're we're a subscription-based news organization, right? I mean, we want people to care enough about us to um, pay to get our journalism, right? Um, and that's a that's a mission I'm really comfortable with. I mean, I, I good information takes like really smart journalists to get, and it it you know it needs to have an economic model behind it. So when we look, we deal with the tech companies. We look at each of these individually. Is it gonna? Is this something we should try? Is this something we should consider? Or does it not make sense for us? That makes sense. So you have other challenges ahead of you. Um, one of them is that people aren't paying as much attention as they have been in the last few years. Axios reported that politics and hard news are down in interest compared to sports like the NFL. During and after the House passed the infrastructure bill, which is at the heart of Washington Post coverage, more people were Googling 
quarterback Aaron Rodgers and his vaccination status. How do you get people interested in infrastructure and block and tackle journalism when this is the kind of thing? Do you ever feel like, oh, I'll just go all Aaron Rodgers all the time or whatever? (laughs) Actually, I thought we had very good coverage of Aaron Rodgers, just FYI. But, um, you know, look, it's actually been, I think, sort of interesting to see people turn to other topics. And not all those topics are, I mean, they're not frivolous topics. I mean, there's been Over the summer, there was an enormous amount of interest in climate stories and extreme weather stories. We had some really big investigative projects this year that looked at things like surveillance technology and stuff like that, and those were getting enormous amounts of interest. So it's kind of interesting and sort of exciting in some ways to see, you know, other areas where we can draw audience. I just think that some of this is a little bit cyclical, and that doesn't seem to be terribly worrisome. I mean, one goal is to tell the story of American infrastructure in such a compelling way that people absolutely can't resist coming to us and reading it. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sally Busby, thank you so much. Thanks. Lots of fun. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Miraza, Blake Nishik, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, Elisa Gutierrez, and Wyatt Orm. Edited by Naeem Miraza, Blake Nishik, and Allison Bruzek. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Mahima Chablani. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you via Jeff Bezos's suborbital spaceship, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.